Welcome to BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast, hosted by the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. Learn more about the trends disrupting healthcare and how companies can adapt and evolve in an ever changing business landscape. Hi there. I'd like to welcome our listeners to another episode of BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast, where we'll focus on elder care conversations happening around the world. My name is Patrick Pilch, and I'm a managing director and national leader of the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. I'm excited today to have three BDO guests with me. First, I'm pleased to have Stephen Schill, who's also a national leader in the center, joining us from Orange County. Stephen serves both public and privately held and not-for-profit companies in the health provider, payer, and insurance sectors. Secondly, I'm thrilled to have Dr. David Friend, Chief Transformation Officer and Managing Director in the center. David has more than 30 years of global healthcare experience and is currently serving as CEO of Senior Care Centers in Dallas, Fort Worth. Lastly, but certainly not least, I'm joined by Bill Lau. Bill is an assurance partner and leader of BDO's China Desk. Bill works out of our LA office and has about 20 years of public accounting experience in both the US and Chinese markets. It's great to have you, Bill. The center recently released Candid Conversations on Elder Care Study. Around the same time that BDO released international analysis of nine European uh, elder care markets. Both studies reveal that the future of elder care puts patients at the center and is focusing on maximum independence and quality of life. Today we're going to talk about the drivers behind elder care's shift towards home health and how providers will have to capitalize on data and technology to transform care models to meet these changing needs. So let's dive into these questions. Let's start off with with David to kick off. Can you give us a bit of background about the center's candid conversations on elder care study? What were the key takeaways? Sure. Well, there's several key issues, among which are that uh, this is a current and growing problem, and it's a problem around the world because, uh, as you know, demographically, uh, most of the industrialized nations are facing a rapidly aging population. So the needs uh, to care for an increasingly large population are going to become ever more paramount. Secondly, people are living a lot longer. Uh, third, the technology available to older people is uh, more profound because of all the advances in science, but that's costing a lot of money. So we have financial challenges. We have the challenges of sheer numbers. We have public policy issues. And so the healthcare system really has not been designed to care uh, for this wave of people. And so, therefore, uh, I think what our study indicates is that there's a lot of change that's going to come about in the healthcare industry to adapt and help uh, this large cohort of people be cared for. Oh, that's helpful. But would you say that obviously more care is being moved from institutions to the home or using, using tech? Well, absolutely. Part of the problem is that our system was designed uh, on more of the traditional model where people went to hospitals or people went to skilled nursing facilities. And now what's happening because of technology, because of all the advances in science, is that we are increasing what the study is showing us that rather than being cared for in hospitals, uh, the people that used to be in hospitals are now moved, moved, now in skilled nursing facilities. The people right. that used to be in skilled nursing facilities are now moving down to assisted living, to the home. So the trend, the inescapable trend, is a lot more care is moving towards the home and independent settings. 
And that's a brand new phenomenon that we haven't had to deal with before. Right. And the, and with that, the role of, of new pay, well, I say relatively new payment models, but payment models been around such as PACE, uh, take hold as well. Or at least the implications of that with respect to social determinants of health. Sure, because the problem has been, because we were also hospital-focused in the way we care for people, that most of the payment models were also driven around hospitalizations and thinking about length of stay and thinking about keeping people in the hospital. That was the locus of care. And now, increasingly, we're realizing that these people would be far better off not being in a hospital setting. So, for example, the PACE program, which is just one example of a different kind of reimbursement system, basically encourages um, the risk takers, the insurers, and the clinical care providers to move the patient to a more cost-effective setting and also a setting that provides a better outcome. And again, I, at one point, through the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence, helped run the largest PACE program in the United States. And what we found there was, again, the ability to actually take people out of the hospitals out of the nursing homes and put them into uh, either adult daycare kind of settings or providing them more care at home got us better clinical outcomes and cost less money. But the current reimbursement models are still much more oriented towards hospitals uh, and towards skilled nursing. So the payment models are going to have to change, reflect our new ways of treating this much larger group of people who have greater demand. So all of these things have to happen in sync. And at the moment, we're kind of out of sync because the payment models are inconsistent with the delivery settings, which are inconsistent with what uh, individuals really need. So all of that is going to have to be uh, transformed and rationalized over the next significant period of time. Thank you, David. So, Stephen, how about a brief overview of the international findings? Yeah, thank you, Patrick. You know, it was a a really um, groundbreaking, in my opinion, um, an exciting international study. So we conducted interviews and data research to analyze elder care in 10 markets, I believe. It was nine European countries, um, as well as the United States. Um, And the study found that all the countries pretty much faced similar challenges in terms of elder care. So, for example, there was an increasing demand for care, new models, um, would be required to allow the efforts to focus on prevention, rehabilitation, and innovation. Um, but the one striking outcome that I think David touched on in his previous, in, in the previous conversation that you had with him was that clearly the number of elderly people is not only growing substantially in all these countries, but they weren't really as healthy in their old age as expected. So, um, like in our U.S. study, um, um, you know, it's clear that value-based care is taking center stage in, in, um, in our, uh, with our global counterparts. Um, but while the U.S. investment trends were largely focused on tech, it appeared that our European counterparts uh, didn't have as much of a focus on tech in their markets. So let's go a little bit deeper into that, Stephen. So how do would the new tech-driven business models that will be required to center elder care around preserving independence, you know, do? Well, well, what the greatest investment opportunities are there? Well, well I think certainly, um, you know, the, uh, and we'll probably get onto it a little bit later on in the conversation, 
But, you know, clearly the use of data um, and proof points um, um, will become mainstream. And I think that the way that technology will adapt to, to, uh, to get there is pretty much the use of, um, and we're seeing it more and more now, wearable devices. Um, you know, things that um, our, elder, um, our elders, you know, will not necessarily have to think about to, um, to or, or need to press a button or need to figure out. They'll just be a wearable, and these wearables will uh, pretty much, I think, uh, uh, gather the data, and those, and those data points will become critical in, um, in, 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 um, in dealing with elder care. There'll be other, there, there are other aspects, obviously, um, you know, and we, we can let our minds run absolutely wild uh, with, you know, robotic uh, in-home helpers, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that's going to be that's going to be down the road somewhat. Yeah, so we've been doing and talking a lot also, too, uh, with respect to disruption and disruptors, tours in, in, um, in health care. And there's the, the, in the elder care section, obviously, the, the demographics, the baby boomers. Uh, and the ability of this more of a there's a consumerism trend to a certain extent going on as well. And technology is going to be front and center in that consumerism trend as we start moving towards uh, more value based. So that's very helpful, Stephen. So David, I want to go back to pace because I think that this is an interesting area. If it's not the only element of and component of the elder care model of the future, I want to think I would think there's some elements of pace that could be pushed out. Uh, into other other care. Uh, well, what's interesting, you know, PACE is, you know, kind of the best-kept secret in healthcare. Yeah. So, again, just to explain it to the listeners, um, it, it, the program is designed to keep seniors involved in their community, to keep them functional, and it uses things like that are preventive care, primary care, behavioral care, and these are kind of other services that are delivered by an interdisciplinary team. So it's very different than if you go into a hospital and you're just seen by a specialist, right? So it's this idea of an interdisciplinary team trying to keep you at home, which most people want. So it's a very, very good idea. Now, interestingly, only about 12, per our study, right, only about 12% of the providers that are planning to invest in this model by 2020. So while PACE has worked, um, clearly um, without it, you'd have a lot more institutional care. Uh, people not being in their homes. So the, the tension pole is that the system kind of gravitates people towards institutions, meaning hospitals, but yet the public want to be home. Now, in California, for example, they have a program, and apparently the estimates are, at least in 2015, that there were something like 31% cost savings for the dual eligibles. The dual eligible meaning eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, and that's in comparison to just our classic traditional hospital program. So clearly, we can save a lot of money and provide better care. In New York, for example, our studies show that the quality of health for PACE beneficiaries is about twice as high as people in other long-term managed care. So, so the issue is there's a lack of understanding how the program works. Medicare still imposes certain limitations which may or not be changed. For example, Medicare currently restricts what the interdisciplinary teams can do. So, and also right now, if you're going to run a PACE program, you need a physical site to provide adult daycare, so you have to have real estate. So, the, the hope would be that over time, uh, we will modify the restrictions as people understand this is really a good thing and that it will grow pretty dramatically. So, I, um, 
And it would become the more helped. innovative. It would probably be the more innovative hospitals and health systems that partner with PACE programs, because for their purposes, it does help with respect to re- reduced um, readmission rates as well. So there is absolutely a benefit ultimately for hospitals. So the more innovative health systems and hospitals are partnering with them. That's helpful. Yes, I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. And if you look at just some of the other. Um, again, if you look at some of the other work we did in the study, which I didn't mention previously uh, when, you were, when you were talking about it, but just a follow-up. Again, there's this goal to, create, to emphasize much more on empathy and quality of life. So that's really, really important. And as we discussed previously, the real investment trends, which go along a pace, would be more home health, more palliative care, and more geriatric care, that that is really going to be uh, important. As we, we have clearly talked about PACE, why we think PACE is so important, and also I think Stephen has just mentioned is this use of technology that we think are, is going to be en- enable people to have more care in their home. So that, I think that's a, that's a full answer to your question. That's great. Thank you, David. So, so Stephen, looking at the elder care trends we're seeing by geography from the study, we saw some interesting variations by location. Can you share with some of those findings with us? Yes, Patrick, sure. Uh, look, cultural differences appear to be the major drivers why planned elder care investments vary by region. We think that there's pretty much a regional divide which shows that the northeast um, is in large plain ca- catch-up to the west uh, when it comes to uh, evolving traditional healthcare models to lower spending and improved outcomes. In the northeast, you have states that tend to spend more um, on health care and hospital care because the region is region's larger portion of, has many more elderly re- residents and higher profile hospitals. In the West, you've got health systems, you know, integrated delivery systems like Kaiser and others that have provided a strong model on, on how a holistic, well-coordinated system can keep patients healthy and out of hospital. Also, the West Coast's milder climate and tech-centric economy, I think, have also played a significant role in the types of care models. Um, one way to improve patient outcomes and, and lower healthcare costs is, frankly, by moving care from the hospital to the patient's home through, once again, uses of technology, like I mentioned previously, sensors, wearables, and, and in-home geriatric caretakers. So while the West has figured out this model um, and has been using it for several years, we think that the Northeast is pretty much upping its investments in the space now to catch up. So there's an interesting divide in the country. Yeah, that's really fascinating, Stephen, and um, I think there's more to come. And actually, while we're on that actual subject there, David, you know, perhaps this would be a good time for you to share some insight about the trends you're seeing in the South-Southwest given as you're, that you're serving as CEO of Senior Care Centers. In, sure. Um, yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Uh, so just to help all the listeners, so currently um, I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Senior Care Centers, and we are the largest uh, skilled nursing provider in the state of Texas, and we operate in Texas and Louisiana. I have about 10,000 patients that I currently care for. I have about 11,000 uh, associates who help care for them. So uh, clearly, uh, senior care is a big issue around the country, and we have a particular knowledge in the South. 
So according to our data, uh, about 40 to 41% of the providers in the South say that home health is one of the top two segments they're going to invest in uh, by 2020. I can tell you from my own experience as well as the survey data that that seems to be very consistent with where we're going. About two-thirds of the respondents said that care coordination and home-based care are the top two aspects of care delivery, and they offer the greatest opportunity for tech disruptors to have the most impact on improving care. And this is because the need to move patients to home is clear. The desire to uh, use technology to help coordinate that care uh, with advanced uh, computer systems, um, just to focus on quarterbacking the care. Because traditionally, if, if someone's got most of their care in a hospital, then the hospital was the locus of the care. But in today's climate, or for a 30-day length of stay for an illness, you might only spend two or three days in the hospital and the other 27 days outside of there, uh, that, up, that episode including up to the home, someone outside the hospital has to quarterback that care or what they call care coordination. So that's uh, – there are emerging enterprises doing that, and they're using technology, such as telemedicine, to make that happen. So that's the second bullet point. The third issue is that we're seeing increasingly integration of healthcare and retail. So if you look at the recent CVS Aetna merger, if you look at startups – um, a lot of them tend to originate on the West Coast and they move east. Uh, so, for example, there's a startup called Honor, which is a West Coast in-home care provider. They moved into the Dallas market. They're opening in Texas Walmarts, for example. We think this is going to continue. For many of the listeners, if you need a flu shot for this flu season, you're likely not going to get it in your doctor's office or the hospital. Uh, like me, you're going to likely go into a CVS to get the flu shot. So that are some of the things that we're seeing, uh, Patrick, uh, particularly in the South. Now, turning, David, to the global study we talk about, of the 10 countries that um, were participating in the global study, Norway and Denmark have the highest number of healthy life years for those age 65 and older. As a trained physician, how do you think lifestyle, culture, and habit uh, do indeed impact healthy living? Sure. Well, I think if you look at the study – the cause and effect, they weren't really analyzed in detail, but I think it's evidence, and I think it's common sense, that there are just considerable differences in lifestyle habits between these various countries. Um, and it's quite interesting. For example, uh, smokers are, make up only 4% of the Norwegian population, while in Germany, uh, people, uh, the smoking rates are in excess of 20%. And actually, the number of unhealthy seniors is growing substantially. So even though they're both in Europe, these populations are very, very different by habit. And for many Americans who I think are used to now being in a more smoke-free environment, it's kind of jarring when they travel to Europe or when they travel to Asia because they really um, realize that those populations are smoking a lot more. Um, the third issue is that if you look at by 2030, which is only about 10 years away, about one-third of the German population is going to be older than 65. And interestingly, uh, once people get to 65, there's still an expectation they're going to live another 20 years. Um, but the most shocking thing of all is this group is only expected to be healthy for eight of those 20 years. So if a 65-year-old expects to live another 20 years, for eight of those years, they should be healthy. But then for 12 years, they're going to be sick, and that's going to be very uh, difficult for them personally. They're going to have a long period of chronic debilitating illness. And two, it's going to be very expensive for those populations to provide 
uh, the services that those folks are going to need. So if you look at the higher number of healthier years in Norway and Denmark, you could argue that they have a more outdoor lifestyle. They have more of a culture of caring in which the families take care of each other. Uh, they have a situation where the elderly have a more meaningful role in the society. And so are the smoking rates. So I think you can see um, in terms of social determinants of care, whether it be in uh, Germany and uh, the Norway, Denmark, or in the U.S., that the lifestyles, culture, and habit really have an impact. And that is an opportunity, obviously, for policymakers and our society as a whole just to try to move ourselves to a healthier way of living, which also, frankly, is also going to be a financially better outcome for the society as a whole. So let's turn to you. What areas of elder care have the greatest potential for disruption in China, and where are those? where are the greatest opportunities for that disruption? Thanks, Patrick, for the uh, question. I think it's a great one. Um, actually, if you follow recently, you must have noticed that, that China has launched its Healthy China Improvement. And this Healthy China Improvement encourages both inbound and outbound um, private investments in the healthcare, senior care sector particularly, and this area is ripe for dis uh, disruption. And also, I think you've noticed that in the recent couple of years, Chinese investors have been increasing their outbound investments in the United States. And what they wanted is really to seek greater access to advanced technology, innovation, and expertise. And these alliances apparently will help bring U.S. cutting-edge products, services, and business models and distribution channels to the China uh, mainland and also the territory Greater China region. And I think eventually participants on both the buy side as well as the south side will benefit through this expansion strategy that will bring about the quality of life improvements to a big Chinese population we're talking about, and we're talking about 1.4 billion people. That's a big market there, big opportunity there, and it's very um, promising when the proper sectors seize these opportunities for further development. Now, that's interesting. Now, notwithstanding um, the policy that's been going on lately with respect to federal policy, but we're also still seeing an increasing amount of cross-border healthcare deals between the United States and China. What are some of the compliance challenges and issues around quality control that foreign healthcare entities and their investors face in China? Yeah, I think um, that's a very tough question, Patrick. And yes, uh, the, there, there's quite a bit of development with regard to governmental initial, uh, initiatives from both sides. But I think in general, in this healthcare industry, China apparently has taken recent steps to further regulate the way business is conducted under its jurisdiction. And as such, it is increasingly important that foreign companies operating in China maintain compliance with uh, both its regulations as well as those of their home countries. Well, that's really to ensure that no activities abroad negatively affect their investments. I think that's just common sense, and it's everywhere, not necessarily just between U.S. and China. And also, when we talk about heavily regulated industries, right, like healthcare, they're also right. subject to additional layer of scrutiny, and, and it would require probably a more strategic approach to regulatory compliance and risk management for any companies operating, I think, uh, abroad, including Asia, including China, they're all the same. So I think 
that mindset and that approach will be crucial. And I think also one more point is that there's a there's a heightened level of concern around the protected health information when foreign companies and foreign uh, nationals invest in the United States healthcare organization by default and by nature healthcare is sensitive and it holds a lot of sensitive and even personal information. So I think if you if you look at this recently and you know our government in the United States actually they enhanced the CFIUS uh, rules and authorities and regulations and the CFIUS is particularly concerned about key and the strategic knowledge that could fall into the wrong hands, which is uh, a good move to protect uh, the consumers and protect the companies in general. That's how I view these things uh, in this bigger okay. context. Yeah, that's very helpful. I mean, just to, to quickly finish up on this too, you were in our, our China office uh, from 2009 to 2016, and you had some time to reflect and, re- and, and see how um, the health and life sciences market changed and evolved firsthand. How you seen it, especially in elder care, uh, you know, observationally that you've seen in terms of way care is delivered or, or new in, investment theses with res- respect to opportunities in China? Yeah, that's, that's another interesting trend that we need to uh, keep in mind and observe. And I think if you, if you, if you follow China's population structure and if you also read uh, those uh, articles and publications and even recent policies, and I'll give you an example, uh, China recently opened its one-child policy, right? So now you can have a uh, second child uh, for a majority of all these uh, families. That really actually ties back to the trend of aging of Chinese population. So that means the elder care sector for healthcare industry actually opens up a big opportunity over here because Chinese population is aging faster than they probably initially anticipated. And in that regard, I think China can have a lot of benefit from investing in the U.S. and other countries for this sector, and also Chinese companies can benefit from this a new opportunities markets in the healthcare industry if we follow this closely and you know tap into our this market our products services and distribution channels. Great, thank you very much, Bill. I think we're done. So, Stephen, David, or Bill, anything else to add? Well, well I think you know, um, Patrick. You know, you 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 touched on some of the. Um, some of the, the questions, you know, relating to, um, you know, the greatest investment opportunities earlier. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of mentioned uh, technology. However, I think to just dive a little deeper into the study, there are some, there are some interesting, there are interesting specific trends that I think some of our listeners would be, would be interested in. Um, so, you know, what I just wanted to kind of share with, um, everybody was well. The study really looked at um, at you know um, at um, certain types of um, specific technologies and um, and 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 saw things like uh, you know, transportation coordination um, mm-hmm. as being very very um, heavily um, a high area of focus. Um, obviously, we mentioned electronic and telemedicine um, mm-hmm. t- capabilities, which the, the study with 93% of the respondents, in fact, said were, would, be, um, would be crucial. 
to improving quality of, of the um, of the elders. Uh, wearables and sensors, as we mentioned, only 89%. Um, so it's kind of interesting that the, the top or the highest um, the highest one was was the highest number of respondents acknowledged that transportation coordination would be um, uh, at 97% would be um, a significant um, would be a significant and, and crucial to improving quality and and you know further to um, maybe that, that conversation that I had about geography you know I, I mentioned the milder climate um, and so clearly. You know, transportation co- coordination in milder climates, for example, are are is in fact easier and, and easier to to achieve than it is in maybe harsher climates. So, right. so there are a lot of a lot of factors here that make a lot of common sense, um, and um, and I think are are, are very interesting um, to kind of delve a little bit deeper into. So that was that was just the other thing I wanted to add. It's almost often the most simple answers get to the point of, of much of this, right, when you think about it. Um, when you're frail and elderly, the ability to get to where you need to be, to be to enjoy social engagement, um, exactly. does have a great impact on health. Well, this is great. Excellent. Stephen, David, and Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show today and sharing your great insights into elder care. Um, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of our show on iTunes. Until next time, this is Patrick Pilch. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also subscribe to the BDO Knows Healthcare blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash healthcare. 